Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, it's just gone half two, so I think we'll make a start. Um, we are overwhelmed by the numbers here, and that's great. Uh, there are still seats in the centre. You're better placed in the centre, really, than, than anywhere for seeing. And also, because we're going to be having audience participation, um, we've got a couple of mics, roving mics. We won't be able to get upstairs, unfortunately. Um, so if you really have a burden for a question, or whatever, just come on down now and, and get a seat somewhere down here. We'll have a couple of mics just running around the, the floor here. So I say, uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, huge interest in this topic, and we sort of had that suspicion. Uh, I just want to welcome our chairman, Trevor Morrow. He is going to introduce all the speakers. <laughs> I'll not even explain the format. Trevor would do that himself, because he's devised this, and uh, I'll not steal his thunder. So we'll just hand over to Trevor. He'll open with a word of prayer and then explain how we're going to carry forward. Thanks, Tom. Um, your presence is indicative of the level of interest in what is an issue of enormous importance to us who are followers of Christ. Uh, we are in his presence. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Um, so that we would think clearly and respond wisely and embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ as we seek to discern your purposes in a part of the world uh, that is in conflict. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I do hope that you're going to find... Uh, this afternoon, um, helpful, informative, and I hope even inspiring. Let, let me introduce people that you may have been introduced to before, but each of them have something enormously valuable to contribute in our understanding and in our prayerful expectation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, I'm going to start with my extreme left. I'm not speaking theologically here. I, it's just so wonderful that Rebecca is also on the stage because there were too many men going to be up here initially. And, and, and Rebecca, you're not just here for gender balance. I want to say that. We, we, we want you to be here on your own merits. Uh, Rebecca and Ramez Atala, of course, are from Egypt. Um, Ramez's con contribution is not simply that he can give us insights as to what is taking place in Egypt, but because of his association with the Bible Society, he has a network of connections throughout the Middle East, uh, in every country, where Christians are seeking to bear witness to the gospel of Christ, and it is invaluable for us to have those perspectives. Over to my right... Um, Dave, I've just had lunch with David and, and Munter, and we've had such fun. And I hope some of that fun and enthusiasm for mission that they're involved in will be communicated this afternoon. Um, David, as you know, is a, is, is a pastor. He's also heavily involved in publishing um, in, in Israel. He is an Israeli, having served in the Israeli army. Uh, Munter is a Palestinian Christian working in Bethlehem uh, from a long tradition uh, within his family as a Palestinian believer within that part of the world. Um, what I plan to do just now in terms of how we're going to organize this, because we want lots of audience participation, is I'm going to invite uh, David and, uh, and, and Munter to say, first of all, just a few things about themselves that's beyond the bio in terms of, their, of who they are as people with regard to their families. And then they're going to make sort of 10, 15 minutes presentations of the context, the social, political, and missiological context in which they are ministering. 
And then I will turn uh, to Ramez and Rebecca, who, who only want to speak briefly because they have already spoken. That's what I was told. And then we're going to have it open uh, uh, for question. David, could we start with you uh, in terms of your background, your family, and, and who you are as a person? Okay. Uh, well, both my parents uh, for many generations were uh, Iraqi Jews. Uh, in the early 40s, when the persecution against the Jews began, uh, my family had to leave uh, Iraq. Part of them crossed the border and went to Iran, and part of them uh, went uh, to what has become at that time, uh, just recently, Israel. Uh, I was born in Israel. Uh, when I was three years old, uh, my mother took my brother and my sister to, uh, to Iran to visit the family. And it was at that time that after being there for nine months, my parents decided to allow me uh, to live uh, with my uncle and aunt that they didn't have any children to save their marriage. So I lived in Iran uh, during the time of the Shah from age of three till age of 16. And when the Islamic revolution started in Iran, being an Israeli, um, uh, I had two choices, either to go back to Israel uh, or to go to any other place. And since my uncle has lost his nephew in the 1973 war uh, in Israel, in the Golan Heights, they decided to send me to the States uh, to take me away from the need to be uh, in the Israeli army. And it was there that the at the age of 16, during my high school, that God got hold of me and to the Bible study that was done in the San Diego State University where I was studying, uh, the Lord converted me, and I uh, became a Christian. Finishing my high school and my college degree, I went back to Israel. Being an Israeli, I had to serve uh, in the military. Uh, and even though my uncle didn't want me to serve there, I ended up being in the Israeli army for almost 16 years, uh, serving as a major there. And at some point when I was uh, continuing my, uh, my work there, uh, when I became an elder in the church, uh, the military had a problem with that, and I had to leave uh, and continue my work as an elder. And later on, God opened the door for us, my wife and myself, to go to, back to San Diego to close a circle in some ways and to study at Westminster Seminary and to come back in uh, full-time ministry. Munter, tell us your story. Well, um, I grew up in an uh, Orthodox house, a uh, Palestinian Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox tradition, uh, the youngest of four. And actually, we can trace back uh, our family tradition to at least 400 years ago when uh, we moved, or great-great-grandparents moved from uh, Jordan, parts of Jordan, Arabia, which wasn't back then Jordan, to uh, Bethlehem. And at the age of 10, I went to a church camp for a small Presbyterian church in Bethlehem, and uh, since then I just gave my life to the Lord and continued to go uh, to that church, which wasn't an easy thing uh, for my Orthodox family because uh, they considered that part of our identity. And uh, I grew up in the church, studied civil engineering in Palestine in a university, Abir Zayt University, and uh, during that time I was heavily involved in starting the student's ministry at that university. And during that time, I also realized God's calling upon my life. Uh, I wasn't called to be an engineer, but rather to, um, you know, I will say, uh, studied engineering to know how to build churches, but then I went to seminary to know how to fill them. <laughs> so I went to uh, seminary, and interestingly, we both went to the same seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, where I went to the branch in the east, and David went to the branch in, in the west of, of USA, and came back in 2005 uh, to Bethlehem and started teaching at Bethlehem Bible College uh, and leading the choir and then uh, did more uh, work in the academic office and eventually started leading a ministry of the college called uh, Christ at the Checkpoint, which is a more uh, conference and uh, a movement. And since 2009, 2008, I have been working on my thesis uh, at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, and I just submitted uh, the thesis last, uh, last month. It's on the uh, issue, uh, theme of promised land uh, in the Bible, and uh, I, moved to, I had to move to Oxford for one year, which I did last year uh, with my family. Uh, married to Rudaina, uh, I wish she was with us, but she's definitely the better half, and uh, we had 
we have one son, his name is Karam, who was born uh, here in, in the UK, in Oxford. But uh, he's made in Palestine, but only assembled in the UK. And this was in, in, in October of uh, last year. And uh, we've been back to Bethlehem uh, for almost three weeks. Uh, now we, we, we went back to Bethlehem in August, and I will start or resume my ministry at the college uh, next week after I finish this conference. Sure. If I can turn to, to Rebecca, could you, could you share with us your story for a few moments? Hiya. I just learned that here this last weekend. I was born and raised in Haiti in the West Indies. My parents were missionaries there, and uh, we were made in Haiti, <laughs> all of us kids, all six of us. And we were there, I was there till I was 14, and then we moved to the States for a few years, and then we moved to Montreal, and I became a student at the McGill University, and that's where I met Ramas, who had before that moved from Egypt, but he'll tell you about that. And we were married in 1968, spent 12 more years, more or less, in, in Montreal, Canada, where we were living, um, and then finally ended up going to Egypt in 1980. So we've raised our two children in Egypt. Um, I think those of you who were here, I think I might have told you on Saturday night that... Um, we have a son who is now doing a postdoc in California in genetics, and our daughter is living in Egypt, married to an Egyptian, and we have two lovely little Egyptian grandchildren, and a third one on the way, but he won't be an Egyptian. <laughs> He'll be a Canadian, I guess, like his mom and dad are. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Um, I came to know the Lord when I was very young, and fortunately, I, I guess I would say that he never let me go. Um, I tried to let him go in college, but fortunately, he, he didn't let me. <laughs> and so it's been a really wonderful adventure of knowing Jesus and finding out what it means to live for Jesus. Rebecca, Ramez. Um, I was fortunate that from the time I was five years old, uh, I knew what I, who I would be and what my career was going to be. And the reason for that is I had a very rich grandfather who had the misfortune of having three daughters, and for a businessman in Egypt to have three daughters isn't a good thing in those days. So he had no son. So he was desperate for a son. My father, his son-in-law his son was not interested in business. So from the time I was born, my grandfather had decided uh, what I would be, uh, the heir to his industrial empire. So from the age five uh, to age 14, I knew exactly what I was destined for and was being groomed for. Uh, and uh, my parents didn't have a choice. My grandfather ran the show. But when I was 14, the Nasser government in Egypt nationalized businesses, and the third big businessman to be nationalized was my grandfather. That means they took all his businesses, they, they sequestrated his private property, and they would force him to run his business at $200 a month paid by the government. My grandfather got wind of that and escaped a week before he was nationalized, moved to Canada, tried to start a business there, and I was smuggled out um, in the spring, in the winter of 2016, uh, of 62, I mean, 1962, I was smuggled out to go and live with my grandparents. Um, my parents weren't able to leave. I was with my grandfather. In May, my grandfather died. And uh, my grandmother left back to family she had in Lebanon. So as a 16-year-old, I was all on my own in Canada. My parents stuck in Egypt and wondering what my future was. And through the love and reaching out of a local church, I was a nominal Christian, but through the love and care of a local church who invited me, who encompassed me, the young people's group there, in August of that year, I came to know the Lord. And from the time I came to know the Lord, I felt now I had a message for my people in Egypt. I didn't know what this church was like. I didn't know uh, how many true believers were in Egypt because that was not my context. 
So from that time in 62, I felt I need to go back and share the gospel that transformed my life with people in Egypt. And Rebecca said, we met at university through the InterVarsity group. Um, we then ministered for, 12, uh, for eight years with students in Canada. And in 1980, I came back to do student work in Egypt. Now, I began reading the history of evangelical missions in Egypt and heard about John Hogg, the Presbyterian missionary, who had gone on that boat you saw pictured on Saturday night, they got burnt. He took that boat up and down the Nile, evangelizing as he went. It was a convenient way for missionaries to go. And uh, he came to that city of Asyut, a, a very famous city in Upper Egypt, and uh, he planted the first evangelical church of Asyut. And the first elder of that church was a man called Tanas. He was a, a carpenter who used to build water wheels. And as Tanas would build the water wheel, it would take about a month to build the water wheel, he would evangelize the people of the village in which he was building a water wheel. So he planted a lot of the churches around Asyut. He ended his life as a, the missionary or the evangelist of the Harper Memorial Hospital in Cairo, an Anglican hospital. Well, I was very interested in that history and He started looking into it and reading books about um, about that whole time of history, and he discovered in one of the books that this man Tanas, are you ready to finish the story, or should I finish it for you? That this man Tanas had actually been his great grandfather, and he had thought that the evangelical Christianity that he had discovered as a young student in Canada was new to his family. He had thought that nobody in his family had been a real evangelical Christian. And here he was discovering that it was actually, in a sense, in his spiritual genealogy, his grandfather and then his, his great-grandfather and then his grandfather to an extent, um, but then it skipped a couple of generations and fortunately caught up with him again when he met Jesus in Canada. Now that I'm in control, one of the dreams... <laughs> I get emotional because it's, it's God's plan, isn't it? Um, one of the two dreams of my grandfather, he was kicked out of the Orthodox Church when he became a, a, a Presbyterian elder, and he was very hurt by that, excommunicated. Uh, and when he worked as an evangelist in that hospital, he was mainly evangelizing Muslims. So his two burdens was to reach back to the Orthodox Church and evangelize Muslims. And as head of a Bible site in Egypt, that's what I do. I serve officially the Orthodox Church and we evangelize Muslims. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have heard already, even through the stories, of these, uh, these Christian leaders, of what God is doing in terms of his presence and witness uh, in, in the region uh, that is our focus this afternoon. Um, but, but I'm going to ask um, David and, and, and Amuntu just to speak for a few moments about the immediate context in which they find themselves in Israel Palestine, and then we'll broaden it uh, as people begin to ask questions, perhaps about Israel-Palestine, and then what is taking place through Egypt and Syria and in other parts of the Middle East. Shall we start with you? Uh, Again. Okay. Again. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Uh, I am a very strong uh, believer in God's sovereignty, and I can very much uh, resonate uh, with what Ramos told us, I think that uh, when we look at God's sovereignty, we can see that who we are is made up of our personal uh, personality and our upgoing, but also related to our family and our, uh, our country. Um, I think when I was uh, 17 years old, for the first time I heard the gospel uh, in the States, as I might have mentioned it earlier, uh, and as, listening, as I was listening to the story of the Old Testament and later on in the, how Christ uh, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, 
the thought that kept coming to my mind is that if this is true, how is it that for so many years I have never heard this story, not in Iran, not in Israel, not with my family that lived in Iraq or anywhere else. And yet at that very night, uh, I said that if uh, God, if this is true, reveal yourself to me. And it was then through the period of uh, six months that uh, I began reading uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, and seeing how as if God was putting a big puzzle together each time, another piece of the puzzle uh, would fall in. Uh, my grandmother had a lot of influence in my life. Um, as I was growing up with my uncle and aunt, she would often tell me a lot of the stories uh, from the Old Testament, but often a lot of the myths. One of the things that uh, I have to explain, uh, I have to tell you about is the story of the Garden of, uh, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He would, she would always tell me that when God created Adam and Eve, before they sinned, their eyes was on the top of their head. And that's why they would always see only God, but, only, but when they took from the apple tree, and of course the tree of knowledge was always the apple tree, when they ate from that tree, the eyes came down and they noticed that they are naked and they, they are shy. But there was the other thing that she would often tell me, especially that in her lifetime, twice she had to leave the countries that she lived in because she was Jewish. First, first Iraq and the second time, Iran after the Islamic Revolution. And she would always tell me that Messiah is not a person, but it's an era. And it's the era where we as the Jewish people would be living in our land and no one would be able to kick us out. And so as I was listening to those two gentlemen um, from the navigators that were sharing the gospel with me and telling me how Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, I was considering some of the things that my grandmother was telling me. And after six months when God converted me, one of the first things that I said to myself is that I want to do everything I can to make sure that the Jewish people realize that the Messiah is a person and his name is Jesus. Uh, and it was to a God's sovereignty, I, after finishing the studies, going back uh, to Israel. And when my family realized that they, obviously they realized about my faith while I was in the States, but when I came back, they were hoping that my faith would go away now that I'm away from those nasty Christians, that uh, I would kind of come back uh, to Judaism. And when they saw that my faith wasn't going away, uh, eventually they, they considered me dead. They said, you're not, you're not our son. They didn't talk to me for many years. When my, in fact, when my wife and I got married, nobody from my family uh, came to our wedding. And often I wouldn't understand why is it so horrible for them to have their son to believe in a man that was born as a Jew, lived, died, and raised as a Jew. But one of the things that they kept telling me all the time that it took me a while to comprehend that. They said, how can you believe in such a man that in his name so many Jewish people have been killed and persecuted? And of course, adding that to some of the things that my grandmother said, uh, had told me and taught me. By the way, my grandmother lived to be 96 years old. Uh, she outlived my uncle and aunt. Uh, blessed be his, her memory, but uh, I, I owe her a lot. But I think because of some of the things that she said and some of the things that my parents said, I became a lot more determined to do everything I can to bring the gospel uh, to, to our family and to, the, uh, to our people. And it's in that context that I feel my calling is actually twofold. The one side of it is, of course, to bring the gospel to the Jewish people that are dying daily, desperately, without Christ, and one of the things that I often need to remind some of my dear Christian brothers and sisters is that we as a Jewish people, one day when we stand before the living Christ, have nothing and have no benefit because we are Jewish, because we'd be standing before Christ just like anyone else. And we need the blood of Christ as an atonement and nothing else. And of course, the second call that I feel that God has called me because uh, of the background 
is to allow the churches to realize that for 2,000 years, the church has failed in bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. And one of the things, again, that my, uh, my family would always remind me is the Crusaders, the Inquisition, the pogroms in Russia, and the Holocaust. And from their point of view, all of these things was done by the Christian church. So I feel that it's my call also to allow the church to see that they do have a responsibility to call the Jewish people to the gospel and to bring the gospel to the Jewish people as well. That's wonderful, David. That's wonderful. Um, Munter, your very presence here is of concern to some people because you are Palestinian. I have to say that before you start. Um, for me, it is, it, as, as, as Fanta, who I call the Bishop Fanta, uh, Ken Clark said this morning, uh, your very presence together is a powerful, tangible expression of what the gospel does. Munter, express where you're coming from. <laughs> yes. Um, I am uh, 34 years old. And in my life, when I try to recount the wars and conflicts that I witnessed, uh, I sometimes you know, fail to remember them all because there's just too many. Uh, growing up uh, seven years old or eight years old, the first Palestinian uprising happened in 1987. And then the Gulf War took place, and, and even though it's in the Gulf, in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, there were missiles thrown at Israel, and we saw them, and we had to put the mass gas just like you. And then the, we witnessed the uh, failed peace agreement, uh, and the Lebanon War, 1996, 1997, and then uh, the Second Intifada, Second Uprising. And once you live outside and, and look back at all of these events, you realize how much... Uh, they shape you and, and how much you uh, you look at God and the Gospels uh, through these uh, events. And uh, as I said, I, I, I felt God's calling to me uh, to ministry uh, when I was in university doing students' ministry. But it was during that time when uh, the second Palestinian uprising, we call it, uh, took place uh, in the early 2000s. And it was a very, very hard time for both Palestinians and Israelis uh, People were dying every day. Uh, it was a time where the, uh, there was a siege over all the Palestinian towns, uh, suicide attacks, uh, sometimes almost on a daily basis by Palestinians in Israel. And uh, the daily life for me was crossing checkpoints to try to go to university. And it was during these checkpoints that uh, I felt really God was shaping me and calling me uh, to ministry because sometimes we would wait for two, three hours on an Israeli checkpoint uh, and we knew it wasn't always for security because uh, they wouldn't search our bags. It was just to control us. We felt it was to humiliate us and uh, there was a battle raging inside of me to, to hate and, and to do what everyone else around me is doing and it's, it's then when you know your faith is tested and it's then when I still remember that I used to wonder, how do these people survive without you know, the love of God in their heart uh, that teaches them to forgive? And I so desperately wanted to do something for my people. And that played a huge role in me deciding to go to ministry because I thought the best thing I could offer my people is to tell them about uh, Christ and to devote my life uh, to that. And so this just shows you how much uh, the conflict plays a role in, in shaping us in telling us how we look at God and how we look at, uh, at uh, Christ. And even when, when I do uh, Christian uh, ministry, teaching at the Bible College, or even talking to students about uh, Christ, uh, the issue that kept coming over and over again is the issue of what about God's promises of the land to the Jewish people? And uh, does God really love us as, as Palestinians? And all of that was made worse by 
so many Christians uh, from outside of Palestine and Israel telling us as Palestinians uh, that we don't belong to the land, even though we've lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the land. And we've had Christians telling us that we should leave because God gave this land uh, to the Jewish people. Uh, and we were always, as evangelicals, um, associated with these people. So when I try to tell people about Christ, they say, oh, I know your church, I know your people, and I know what they're saying about the land. And if you're wondering why did I devote five years of my life doing a thesis on the theology of the land, it's this background of me having to struggle. Did God really give my land to someone else? And by the way, uh, you know, my family lost a lot amount of land that was confiscated by Israel, and now uh, there's a settlement on it, Harhuma, Abu Ghanim. And so we lost land and probably or possibly, I don't know, there are now uh, you know, Jewish immigrants who live in the land who were supported by Christians and paid by Christians to come, you know, funded by Christians to come and live on our land as Christians. And so that you know, struggle caused me to study these issues and, and to want to give uh, an answer to that question. And as David was sharing about his history, I just realized how much Christians have made this whole conflict worse first by years of mistreating Jewish people, and now in, uh, the way we see it, uh, in the recent history, the way they have mistreated us, and uh, your comments, Trevor, in the beginning, uh, that maybe there are some people who are not happy I'm here. Unfortunately, I'm, uh, my answer is I'm used to that, because we've been mistreated as Palestinians uh, for many years, just for questioning the notion or struggling with the theological idea, did God give our land uh, to someone else? Now, uh, I'm not going to give my theological answer to all of that right now because it's going to take hours and maybe David would like to put an input and we'll start a nice or interesting conversation. <laughs> but that's for some time, another time. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I think you heard something of the pain, the pain that, that uh, Munter and many of his family feel in the context in which there is tension and division in a place that is so close to our hearts that we call the Holy Land. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to open the floor for questions at this stage. Uh, and I want them initially to be specifically in terms of Israel-Palestine. If you have a question in that area, and I hope you've come with some questions, you will address them, and then we'll move in a broader context so that uh, Ramez and Rebecca can participate in this in terms of what is taking place uh, with regard to the Arab Spring, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, what is actually taking place on the ground. So let me invite, um, in the light of what you've heard, some questions. Would you just raise your hand if you have a question with regard to, to, to there's, there's a question from the start. Just say who you are. You don't have to give a history of yourself, just your first name. That's all. I'm whoever, okay? I'm Ronnie, and um, I used to be a very strong supporter of the Israeli cause, but following the invasion of Gaza and the death of 352 Palestinian children, I began to question the theology behind Zionism. And the question I want to ask is this. I have by faith Abraham as my father too. So am I entitled now to go to Palestine sequester some of the land there, set up a settlement uh, for Irish Presbyterians and tell the settlers to clear off? Or is it not a question, as it says in Hebrews 11 and 16, that it's a heavenly land that I've been promised? Uh, I should explain to, to both David and Munter that Ulstermen are very direct in their questioning. Very <laughs> 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 There is no doubt about where he's coming from and the nature of his question. I, I, I think we'll start with you, David. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, again, um, if we look at the history uh, of the conflict in the woods and the history of the many countries, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I lived in the United States uh, about eight years of my life. Uh, living in California, we were dealing with a lot of the uh, Indian reservations. Uh, that, of course, they felt that uh, the Americans, uh, the white people, have uh, have taken their land. So I think that 
And we can probably uh, think of a few other places that that's uh, the situation. I was, I was, I wanted to be gentle. <laughs> I wanted to be gentle. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think uh, when we think about the issue of the land, uh, I think the issue is not so black and white. Uh, obviously, as Monte was saying, uh, his ancestors lived there for, for hundreds of years. Uh, we certainly can talk about the fact that the Jewish people lived in the promised land. They always had a presence in the Holy Land, uh, certainly from the New Testament era and even before that. Uh, and I think that the issue uh, becomes not so uh, white and black as we often want uh, to paint it. Uh, one of my concerns is, uh, even though we do need to talk about justice in, our, in terms of our faith, but I think uh, for me, my call is to bring the gospel to both my Jewish people as well as to Palestinians, and that's one of the reasons that I'm involved uh, with various ministries that work also among the, the Arab people, both in Israel uh, and outside. And I personally would put that in, the, in terms of the priority of the call that God has called us. Thank you, David. Munter, would you like to respond to that? With regards to Abraham being uh, our father, uh, in fact, that's one of the uh, arguments I usually use when I have a dialogue or conversation with uh, other messianics or uh, those who we can call Christian Zionists, uh, whether the Bible, you know, uh, who's the uh, uh, seed of Abraham, all of that. And so I could resonate with that theologically. Uh, but uh, I think we need to be careful and I tend to be careful in any language of entitlement to the land, uh, if any language of this is God's giving land to me. Because the moment we assume that God is on our side, uh, we can do whatever we want because we have God's side. And so the way I look at it is uh, the church, whether uh, outside of Palestine, Israel, or inside of Palestine, Israel, has been questioning for many years, whose promised land is it? To whom does the land belong? And I think this question has divided us. And I think we need to come to a point in which we agree this is God's land. And the real question is, how can we live to get in it together? And my plea to uh, Christians outside of Palestine and Israel, or, you know, let me say my plea to Irish Christians, is to stop uh, or to help us avoid this divide of question, to whom does the land belong? Because let me answer you. I've studied this. It belongs to God. But please... <laughs> Please help us live together in the land and, and support initiatives, support Christians there who are trying to bring the two peoples together. This is the question we need to ask rather than to whom does the land belong. Thank you. Are, are there any other questions? Would you? There's one here. My name is Stuart. Um, I come down today just especially to hear our two brethren from the Far East. Uh, I have a great interest in what's happening in the Middle East because I believe that God is working out his whole plan, his whole purpose in that land. I believe Israel was born in a day according to God's promise. I believe the Lord owns that land. It's not a question of Palestinian it's not a question of Jew. It's the Lord's land. He gave it to Abraham, and he's going to give it back to Abraham's people. That's what the scriptures clearly state. And I feel myself it's not a question either of helping people live together. It's to stop apostasy in the churches today. There's false teachings in the Christian church today. And I believe that prophecy is greatly overlooked in any debate in relation to Israel. My own personal view is that we're moving into the end times. I believe that God is going to continue to use Jerusalem as the stumbling block, which he is steady will do. It will become a stumbling block to all nations. And regards to Ronnie, um, 
I do sympathize with you. I don't like violence either. But I see in this world a tremendous amount of violence. I see it from all sorts. We have lived in a land here with violence. We have seen killings on all sides. And I would just pray for the priests of Jerusalem. I just pray that the work of Jesus Christ among the Jews and among the Palestines will go on with great strength. And it's great to hear people who have a desire to preach the gospel to their own people. May God bless you. Thank you. Any, any other comments or questions? Do you, do you want to say something, Munter? Hold on. Munter wants to say something. Uh, thank you for your comments, um, but uh, I, I need to say my heart. And I think um, part of the problem, that's my opinion, part of the problem is that uh, I believe problems, uh, Christians have looked at the Middle East for too many years through the lens of prophecy. And I disagree with you that prophecy has been overlooked. I think it has been overemphasized. And this has, uh, the way I see it, stereotype people because we have created uh, in our minds a vision of the future and that perception of the future based on our own interpretation of prophecy and we have too many interpretations of prophecy so whichever tradition has each tradition has a different vision of the future and then this vision of the future becomes a reality and we stereotype people based on that and because of that, I've heard so many people tell me, well, there is no hope. There's Armageddon is happening soon. We live in the end times. Well, I have a 10 month, 11 months years old child. And this, this, this answer does not help me. Okay? And I'm not just going to live and await Armageddon and await my fate like this. And so instead of envisioning prophecy and thinking what's going to happen and uh, wars, you know, God will do whatever God wants to do because he's sovereign. We all believe in that. But I believe in God's call to my life to be a peacemaker. And unfortunately, as I said, I've seen nations demonized, certainly the Palestinians, by certain images of prophecy. I'm not sure which one you have, so I'm not excusing you, so please don't, don't get that from me. And at the same time, I've seen people who, have, uh, who are certain that God's vision is that for the Jewish people to return and have a state, and then Christ will return, focus entirely on that, and even in, in the Israeli circles, neglecting the Messianic church. And I've listened and sat with Messianic believers who said, you know, we have Christians supporting so many initiatives in Israel, but have nothing to do with the Messianic church because they don't want to offend the Jewish people. All because of certain uh, imaginations of the prophecies and what will happen and, and all of that. And I believe, you know, again, God is sovereign. And I believe God's word will happen. Jesus will return. Okay, all of that. And whichever way it happens, let's leave the details to God. Can you stand so that we Hello. can see you and, and hear you? Hi, uh, David, it's Tim. Uh, just a quick question. Yourself and your church, um, of the Jewish people that you interact with day by day, do you find more orthodox religious Jews or liberal-minded that are coming to know God? Um, yes, uh, I think that uh, in our church uh, we have actually uh, this coming uh, Saturday, hopefully I would say a few words about it tonight, uh, we will have five people that would be baptized. One of them uh, is from a very, very orthodox family. In fact, his family live in Brooklyn in New York, and some of you that might be familiar uh, you know how black that part of the Brooklyn is uh, with the Jewish people. Um, one of the things that we are seeing in the last uh, probably seven or eight years is that a larger number uh, of Orthodox are showing an interest uh, in the gospel. Not necessarily that they are coming to faith, but that they are showing an interest. In fact, uh, about three years ago, we were having uh, an evangelistic campaign that Hageffen was doing it with the Bible Society and some other uh, churches, and we have all these ads on the, uh, on the buses, uh, and one day I was sitting at the call center, and somebody called, apparently they were driving, they saw the number they called from their cell phone, and from the question I realized that 
they have some knowledge. And towards the end of the conversation, I told them, uh, they said, well, we have to leave. I said, well, if you give me your address, we'd be happy to send you uh, uh, the New Testament. And so, well, you can't because we, we are a yeshiva student. They were uh, Orthodox studying in the, uh, in the uh, seminary, in the Jewish seminary, as we, we say. And uh, so we are seeing that sort of things happening more and more. And one of the other things that is interesting is that uh, to some of the websites that we're offering, the New Testament and some other uh, uh, evangelistic booklets, we are seeing more and more. Uh, Jewish people, but to some degree also Orthodox people who cannot openly come and ask for the New Testament are reading the New Testament to the to the internet. So we are seeing, I would say, a small crack uh, in the baton wall. That's very encouraging. That's very encouraging. We have one more question. My name's Robin. And uh, it's non-controversial, I think. I was just intrigued by the fact that you said you went to your uncle and aunt to save their marriage. That's just the question. Well, I have to say I did save their marriage, but they had a very horrible marriage. <laughs> um, do, do I have a question about the issues like Syria or, you know... Has anyone got a question? Otherwise, I will ask it. <laughs> okay, here's a question. Uh, my name is Don, and uh, I'm going to Israel for two months on the 1st of September. I'll be working with the International Christian Embassy, and my wife will be working in doing something else. In the, in the way of artwork of the history of Israel in the German colony. I, uh, I hear the difficulties that we have as we sit here as Christians and listen to Christians in Israel, in Palestine, and indeed in Egypt. I watch, I suppose, about five channels at the moment because I have a great interest in the area. <laughs> So, as you say, we hear different stories, and some we don't even hear at all. It is my belief that the war is in the heavenlies, that it is something that is going on in the heavenlies. And Islam has risen. It took 600 years to start Islam after our Lord died. And somehow Islam has been presented, is, is going through the world, is raging through the world, uh, like a lion, to, as an antidote to Christianity, which was doing very well in Roman times. And here we have today the outpouring of that, the battle between, in the heavenlies, of Islam, Christianity, and it's going right through the Middle East as we watch. Millions of people are being affected today. And I just wonder how we can somehow encourage a common sense which doesn't seem to be there uh, we understand very much in Northern Ireland the difficulty of religious extravagance we've had it here for my lifetime so my question I suppose is how best can we encourage Israel and the Palestinians and indeed the different sections that you have in, in Egypt. What can we do for the best? Right now, some of the Western powers are, are thinking about throwing more rockets around. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that? What do you think? I'm going to start with Munter on this one. <laughs> <laughs> How best can we help our, uh, the Palestinians? Before I answer that, I uh, just want to go back to some comments you made about uh, Islam. Uh, it, it seems to me that one obstacle we Christians have when it comes to Islam is that we approach them uh, with fear. You just referred to Islam as this raging lion's. 
For me, Islam is my neighbor, uh, the one I ride the taxi with, uh, someone with a family who's trying to raise his child uh, in Bethlehem or in Hebron. And I think as long as we look at Islam with this uh, veil or this image of this raging enemy that's going to take over the world, uh, and this fear will paralyze us and paralyze our young people from really reaching out to them with love and humility and then ultimately leading them to, to know Christ. And so um, I, I strongly believe that we need to um, overcome uh, this, this, this fear, uh, this obstacle of fear. And if anything, going back to Ramesses' comments, uh, uh, what happened in Egypt is actually important for all over the Middle East because it, it again showed us that not all Muslims are the ones who want to get rid of Christians from the Middle East and the ones who, want, uh, who demonize us and all of that. And so this gives us, you know, again, a sense of hope that uh, we can look at them uh, in a new lens. And in fact, there were many pictures coming uh, from Egypt of Muslims protecting the churches the next day. Not the police, but young people, young Muslims protecting the churches. And so I uh, uh, just wanted to make uh, this comment about how we look at, at, at Muslims and how we look uh, at Islam. Uh, and when it comes to the Palestinians... Uh, what is best? I think I would say that the best thing you want to do to Palestinians uh, first is to listen to them. I think this is the most thing that I would say. And I've, for so many years, we've had people speaking on our behalf, saying things that we would not say. And so what is best for us uh, is, is, first of all, come and listen to our stories. Spend time with us. You're coming to spend time with the Christian embassy. May I challenge you to actually spend more some time with the Palestinians. Cross the checkpoint and listen to Palestinian story. Listen not just to Palestinian Christian stories, to Palestinian Muslim stories, and, and listen to our struggle in addition to spending time uh, with uh, Israelis and with Jewish people. And only then you will begin to get a crisp of what is really uh, needed. Spend time with the believers and, and listen to them. And as I said, too many organizations... Uh, say, for example, we want to bless the Palestinians, Christian organizations, but we want nothing to do with the church. Or we want to bless Israel, but we want nothing to do with the church. And I think this is not the best way to, because in my opinion, if there is any hope, or at least this is my calling, if there is any hope for the Middle East, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the church has to be part of it. Otherwise, you know, we are irrelevant. And so uh, to bless uh, the Palestinians, listen to their stories, visit their churches, and uh, then you will hear you know, our yearning for justice, our yearning for uh, security, our yearning, you know, uh, I don't want to live a life where to go visit my in-laws, I have to cost three checkpoints, and instead of driving for 40 minutes, I have to drive for an hour and a half. So you will listen to all of these uh, stories. And then uh, finally, you know, I believe that the Spirit will lead you to know what's best for uh, the Palestinians. Thank you. David, do you want to make a comment on that? Uh, sure, if I may shortly. Um, I just want to say two things. Uh, the first thing is easy, and that is we do need to see uh, the Muslim people as the people that, just like any other people, are desperately in need of Christ. And I think that especially in the last, some, uh, in the last few years, we are hearing wonderful stories of what God is doing among the Muslim people, especially as I'm looking in the flag of Iran, uh, they're talking about the fact that there are more than a million, some people even say close to two million Iranians uh, that are Christians. So we certainly need to pray for the Iranians, for the Muslims all over, and not to see them as our enemy. The second thing that I want to say, since we didn't have much controversial in our discussions, <laughs> uh, is I want to say something that might look a little bit uh, out of the box or out of our comfort zone. We often have a tendency to look at conflict and killings, and maybe rightly so, as something that is negative. Obviously, as we are hearing of thousands of people that are being killed in Syria, we need to realize that these are people that are dying without Christ and going to hell. And that should certainly concern us, especially in light of what was said yesterday by David Robertson. But there's another side to it, and that's what I want to mention briefly, and that is that often, conflict can draw us closer to God and God can use that 
in bringing us to himself. Uh, in 2005, Israel drew out, uh, drew back from Gaza, both military-wise and civilian one. Since then, there have been about, I don't know, 15,000, 16,000 missiles that landed from them. One of them, by the way, landed three homes from where we live. But I think that that reality has made the fact that death is such a reality now. I think that's one of the reasons that we are seeing an openness among the Jewish people and about the Israeli. Because when a person is feeling that death might be coming and you never know that it might be waiting for you at the corner, then you start to ask some of the hard questions that in normal daily life we don't ask ourselves. You know, and that is, what is my destiny? What's going to happen if I die? And I think that we need to look at that again. Uh, it's difficult to say that we should look at the, the conflict and the killings and everything uh, as something positive, but we should see that God is sovereign, and often he can use those sort of things to draw his people to himself. And so pray for the peace, not just for the peace of Jerusalem, that there would be peace between Israelis and Palestinians and in Egypt, even though that's much needed, but more important, that God would bring the peace of Christ in the hearts of the Jews and Muslims, Israelis and Palestinians, Egyptian and Syrian, because it's only then that we would see a real peace coming in the region. Good answer, David. No one's going to ask a question about the situation in Syria. Could, could I ask you a question in that area? Does anyone like, would like to have a go? And, because certainly don't ask me. Well, the only thing I can say uh, about Syria is that uh, uh, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking. And I know as a church in Israel, we've been praying for Syria for almost uh, weekly and uh, about a year ago, we were able to, uh, the, uh, one of the Nazarene churches in Jerusalem, uh, to send a donation from some of the Christian churches that are going through a very, very difficult time, not just because of the violence, but because of trying to reach out to the so many refugees, so many orphans, and so many widows that they're just not able to cope with the great need. And I think that's something that uh, we as the church, as the churches, uh, should find ways that we can help the Christians in this difficult time in Syria and to show them the love of Christ by the means of the support and the prayers that we offer to them. I, I am going to bring this to a close unless someone has a specific question that they want to ask. Um, I'm going to address this particularly to Munter and, and uh, to David. I, uh, we are honored to, to be present in such an event like this. We really are. I feel so privileged to be part of this. I, I would like you both to share just a little bit about what both of you are doing, because you know this is close to my heart, in the area of reconciliation, as an expression of what it means to be a follower of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God, vis-a-vis um, Jews and Arabs, Palestinians and Israelis. I'm going to start with you, Monter, on that. Hmm. Well, reconciliation uh, for me is an integral part of the gospel because I cannot claim to be reconciled with God and then uh, not be reconciled with my brother. And, and two verses in particular shaped my life when it comes to reconciliation, and then I tell you what I'm doing. The first one is in First um, John when it says, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, then you are a liar. And I took that very, very seriously when I read it, and it was explained to me in the context of reconciliation between Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews. Uh, and the second one is uh, in John 17 when it says, they shall know that uh, the Father had sent the Son when we are one, when we are united. And so our unity uh, is a sign that uh, the Father has sent the Son. It's a sign to the world. And uh, please understand that this is not something easy uh, for us as Palestinians. Uh, you've heard some of my personal struggles as going through the conflict. 
and uh, maybe you've realized I have strong opinions and believe me I, I'm self-restrained right now <laughs> when it comes to political things uh, and maybe some theological things I am you know I have strong opinions about the conflict and as I told David uh, over lunch I'm sure if we have a discussion a political discussion we might realize we have a lot not in common when it comes to politics uh, but it's because of that I am called to reconciliation. And so there is no point to have reconciliation with uh, David if we agreed on politics and theology. And, and, and it's, this is the challenge for me, is despite all of these things that I mentioned, am I willing to meet and listen uh, to the yearnings of the uh, Israelis? And am I willing to uh, dialogue with them? Or shall I just, you know... Uh, say, like many Palestinians, I don't want to meet with Israelis. And there is actually a law, uh, unwritten law in Palestine that Palestinians and Israelis shouldn't move. You know, we should boycott Israelis. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, uh, God must be obeyed uh, before a man, and so I have no problem whatsoever uh, in sitting uh, alongside David, because it's about the kingdom of God first. And so how that is uh, materialized is uh, some initiatives in the Holy Land that try to bring Palestinians and Messianic Jews together, one of them called Musalaha or Reconciliation. And I've been to many encounters uh, with them, uh, bringing young people together as teenagers. And I now serve uh, on the board of that uh, organization. And believe me, it is not easy uh, when we bring you know, the two groups together sometimes uh, for these encounters. And I can tell you uh, stories over stories and uh, through the grace of God we now have more initiatives uh, one through uh, Lausanne uh, to bring uh, more Palestinian Christian leaders and Messianic Jewish leaders uh, together again despite uh, all of our uh, differences and this has led me not simply to these initiatives but to read more about Jewish history to try to understand more uh, uh, the story of uh, quote-unquote the other. Uh, this led me to visit uh, the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, to understand more uh, the history behind all of that. And it doesn't mean that I had to compromise my Palestinianism or my Palestinian beliefs, but I believe this made me a uh, better Christian and even a better advocate for the Palestinian people and for justice on the Palestinians because uh, it's one thing to stay in the corner and shout uh, I am a victim, and it's another to be engaged in these discussions and understand the other, and then try to, you know, uh, speak about the Palestinian people, our struggle, after having been, you know, uh, in these encounters. Thank you. Thank you, Monter. David. Uh, well, I should say that uh, Christ has never called us uh, necessarily to an easy life, and I think uh, uh, the challenge for us is that despite of the pain, and often the pain is very deep, that even uh, uh, sitting together or speaking uh, would probably would take a lot more than that to, be, uh, to overcome that. But I think the challenge we have, but also the great opportunity that we have, is that despite of the pain, to work together and to show the world the unity that we have in Christ. Uh, one of the uh, the few things that we are doing uh, uh, that I'm involved with that trying to help with that unity is first of all uh, I'm involved or I'm the chairman of the Israel Education Forum uh, in which the goal of bringing uh, advancing the cause of education among both the Jewish and the Arab Christians uh, Jack Serra who is the president of the Bethlehem Bible College is one of the members Butrus Mansur from uh, from Nazareth uh, is another member of that uh, of the group we are working together for the first time in Hagefen in March of this uh, last year, uh, of this year, uh, we printed an evangelistic booklet in Arabic uh, that was used in Jericho and other parts uh, um, of the Palestinian territory, and also in some of the uh, Arabic cities. We are working on publishing a book in the Farsi language, also for the first time. Uh, and uh, and I'm always uh, proudly say that in our congregation. Uh, we have a, a Palestinian family that she has been, she and her children has been a member of our church uh, for many years. And we are trying by that to show that in Christ, despite of the pain, despite of the challenges, and despite of what our people say, 
And what our government does, we have unity in Christ that nothing and no one uh, can take that away. And in closing, I do want to take this opportunity, even though I'm not the spokesman of the Israeli Defense Forces or the Israeli government, to do apologize uh, to Munter, maybe as a representative of the Palestinian people in some ways, uh, for some of the injustice to some degree that was done, whether by the Israeli government, people, or the military. Of course, I also realize that there is a lot of uh, demonization that takes place in our society towards the Jewish people, and there is a lot of um, bad speech that comes across, and we've done some horrible things in the past, and of course, uh, these are not things that I would um, subscribe to, and again, I would like to apologize for that as well. I'm going to invite Tom to come and, and, and speak for a moment. As a group, the uh, Worldwide, long before my time, uh, has been a risk-taking organization. Uh, we believe that's what Christians have to do at times. And in preparing for this, this afternoon, we just saw the huge opportunity that we would have here of having these folks, these experts, from a very difficult part of the world, but an area that we have a particular interest in, to have them here and to open it up to people. So we are very, very grateful that these folks are coming, but particularly for yourselves for coming and for having a mature discussion about it. In many ways, we could have fallen into Northern Ireland's way of all these sort of picking up particular positions. Thank you for the intelligent questions we've had. It's encouraged us to be more risk-taking in the future. But it is, does fall to me to just say a big thank you to, uh, well, these poor guys... <laughs> They're on again tonight. They haven't told you all their stories, so do come back and you'll hear the rest. So they need a bit of a rest now. They can come back this evening. But also uh, to Ramiz and Rebecca. We won't be seeing much more of them, unfortunately. Maybe come back another year. But they give us a very, I think, insightful view of, of Egypt over on Saturday. So a big thank you to them. And particularly to thank you to, we keep calling him the moderator. Those that are Presbyterians will know that there's a bit of a joke in there. But he was moderating this uh, discussion. We're very grateful to Trevor. We knew we needed a man with a bit of uh, charisma, and that's what he's done this afternoon. So a big thank you to them. Maybe we could just show that round of applause. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.